Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vember. In this episode of the podcast, we hear from one of GBSN's new members, Coventry University Business School. What would a business school look like if one started with a blank sheet of paper and did not benchmark other business schools? What would the content be? Who would teach? What would it cost? In this session, we will look at how business schools got to be where they are because of the Ford and Carnegie reports over a half a century ago. The advent in 1987 of the first of the major rankings and the drivers of accreditation. In this audio, captured during a GBSN cross-border webinar, Pro Vice-Chancellor at Coventry Business School, Kai Peters, makes the case for a major overall of the structure and positioning of business schools for the future. Here's GBSN's CEO, Dan DeClaire, to introduce Kai Peters. It's a special treat for me today to, to be with Kai Peters. I've known Kai for many years, and as some of you saw in my LinkedIn post, uh, always, always insightful, always provocative, and always fun. So it's really great to have you here, Kai. Brief introduction. Kai is Pro Vice Chancellor at, uh, for Business and Law uh, at Coventry University. And what that means is that he's responsible for all activities across the whole Coventry University group. That's a, that's a big uh, thing because they have hubs not only in the UK, but they have hubs in, uh, um, let me make sure I get this right, Brussels, Dubai, Singapore, and have, have you got the Rwanda hub up and running yet, Kai? Yeah, it's up and running, yeah. Uh, yay. Well, that's one of the reasons why we're especially happy to have Coventry University on board at the Global Business School Network. But uh but Kai's been around the industry for a long time. Before uh, Coventry, he had uh, been at uh, Ashridge as the chief executive before, and then it, it, it merged with Holt International Business School, and he served as, um, uh, I guess, chief academic officer provost, uh, what we might call provost in, uh, uh, in that merged environment. And I remember having some conversations about some of the struggles with that with that merger and how things uh, evolve from a, a largely executive education focus to a, um, international institution degree focus. So um, maybe that'll be part of the conversation today. Before that, at Erasmus at RSM, uh, serving as uh, Dean, at least during part of that time, we're happy that RSM is a, also a member of the Global Business School Network. Um, made the rounds in all the, the big organizations, AACSB, which uh, uh, I largely uh, worked closely with Kai in different capacities, EFMB, Chartered ABS, Graduate Management and Mission Council, but also has written in quite a bit. In fact, uh, as we prepare for this, I, I dug out my copy yeah. of a book. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll learn about different points of view for that. But I'm gonna stop now because Kai has a lot to say. I'll come back and uh, work with Kai on, the, on the, a little bit of a discussion regarding uh, some of his remarks. So Kai, it's all yours. Thanks, Dan, that's very kind. Yeah, we've known each other a long time through the associations, which has been great fun. And one of the things I've enjoyed in my career is just seeing it from different perspectives, you know, from a perspective of effectively the North American style grad school in Rotterdam to then doing executive education 
which is a whole different path to market kind of uh, area of business, now doing effectively a big access university where we really try and create better futures. But I tell you, the last time I saw an undergraduate before Coventry was when I was one myself. So it's also been this whole age range of the 20 somethings, the 40 somethings, now some that I need a police license to talk to because they're still 17 years old. So it's been a broad range, but that's also what's made it interesting. And I hope has given me a chance to look at the business schools in the round, because that's what I think is interesting. I don't know if anyone's familiar with a guy called Bob Cato. He's a writer in the States, Carol, a writer in the States who wrote about um, Bob Moses in New York. And his interest was, I write about things that I want to know about and I want to understand how they work. And that's been my kind of driver as well. Because a lot of people tell you this is the way business schools are, or this is the way a company is. And then you ask them a few questions and you realize they haven't thought about it enough. And I think only if you understand the industry you're in and where it's come from, can you really understand what's going on. Um, for all of the academics out there, Carl then wrote a five volume autobiography or biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson, where apparently he wrote one of the chat, one of the books at like 290 or 300,000 or 600,000 words and threw 300,000 of those words to the cutting room floor. And for any of us in academia, you're like, I'm gonna throw out 300,000 words, fills us all with absolute and abject horror. Um, writing that many words fills me with horror. So I try and be pithy. Um, but for my own happiness, pat myself on the back here, uh, there's a new thing coming out from the EFMD of the best articles over the past 15 years from Global Focus. And I figured there were about 500 articles and they've selected 25 and I got two of them in. So apparently every now and then someone thinks I have something worthy to say. It might be because my friend Howard Thomas uh, edited the overall publication and was co-author on them, but who's counting? There you go. I guess I haven't received my notification yet that they've included one of my articles, right? <laughs> it's not even going to be a rubbish book. So I can go back to my CV <laughs> and say, I'll have a couple more articles and a book, la, 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 la. Always very good. That's the way academia works. You write with friends. That's what friends are for. Um, so what today I'd like to do is go through that kind of background on business schools. If there are business school historians on the call and you have something to chip in with because I'm wrong, um, please do. I think I'm reasonably well um, rehearsed in the space, but I have found a lot of people just don't understand some of the background and the background of business schools is actually very fascinating. So how did we get there? In some ways we've come full circle. If you think about some of the early business schools, especially looking at the Karana book from Harvard that came out in 2007, 2008, he writes around the history of business schools and business schools come from all over the world, all over the continent, all over North America, from a kind of very practical orientation. Subjects like commercial correspondence, business English, office technique, were the fundamentals that were being used at Stern, at NYU, and at Northwestern. And uh, it made me laugh when I read this because often I run into people whose business English and commercial correspondence could be significantly better. Um, it was really in the kind of World War I era with some of the studies on the logistics of the army, especially the US Army, that brought in kind of Taylorism and an understanding on the need for scientific management to get the logistics better. 
to get the production flows going. So very much found kind of an engineering, slightly technocratic approach, but it really seemed to add some value to the military and by extension was used a lot by Ford and some of the early motor companies that were having to deal with their supply chains and bring things together. Now this trickled into industry and sooner or later it trickled back into the business school landscape where faculty members from other subject areas were being accused of dilettantism, not really knowing what they're doing and talking out both sides of their ears at the same time. So faculty members sought to professionalize their trade, become more structured and become more managerial. Effectively, physics envy set in and business school faculty members wanted to be taken more seriously. The really, really important bit that foreshadows where we are today are the two studies known as the foundation studies in 1959. Um, we're all familiar with kind of the results, but where they came from is really fascinating. So the Carnegie Foundation looked at undergraduate degrees and thought in most degree areas, people were too narrow. They were kind of um, into their own little silo. They weren't thinking more broadly. And this led to the first year in US schools, including the kind of liberal arts general studies areas. I know I had the same thing in Canada. I had to do a science course. I had to do this course and that course, no matter what I was going to study. I thought it was quite valuable and it brought some interest into it. But of course, it makes the North American system quite incomparable to some of the continental and international systems where one jumps right into the subject area very quickly. The Ford report looked at things from a different perspective altogether. They were looking at graduate business studies and concluded that it was a I can't read what I wrote under there, that it was a wasteland of vocationalism, which was pretty damning. And you have to remember that between 1900 and 35, the foundations, Carnegie, Ford, etc., contributed 64% of money going to business education across the states. So everyone was prostrating themselves to get some foundation money. And the foundations put into effect a thing that they would only give you money if you believed in the health of the economy, democracy, and American way of life in the face of communism by making business schools serious, by pitching the need for capitalism, by dissing socialism and social democracy as much as possible. And this led to lots and lots of money for the schools that went for it. Carnegie Mellon was big on it, the usual suspects, you know, Columbia, Harvard, uh, Chicago, everyone was quite happy to take some serious amounts of money from the foundations. So you can already see the interaction between politics, capitalism, and business education that kicked in already with that first generation of donors that came out of foundations. Where, where did this lead to afterwards? Well, it led to the money not necessarily coming only from the foundations, but money coming from named individuals. I've written up a few of them, everyone on the call can read, but by 2016, 10 schools together had pulled in 1.2 billion in donations. The most expensive recently was 300 million for Booth in Chicago. And you get all the other ones there, hundreds of millions of dollars going into business education in the States, named after individuals and really making an effect. So between the 80s and the 90s, 57 schools were named across the US 
and a little bit in Canada, but interestingly, very little elsewhere. Oh, did I want to go there? So let's look then at what has happened from another perspective, from the curriculum. I, I talked earlier about how things were very practical at the beginning, and then they tried to become more serious. So there is a book that I will hold up. Now, this is not me. This is A Labor of Love by a guy called Noel Capon, who wrote a 500-page study of the curriculum redesign at Columbia University for 1990. Why would anyone write 500 pages about curriculum review at Columbia in 1990? But bless Noel, he did. And basically, it's a book about 500 pages of infighting between faculty members at Columbia about how this wasn't going to be possible, that wasn't going to be possible, the other thing wasn't going to be possible. So here we have a look at the 1960 first revision of the curriculum after the kind of foundation reports. And you go, okay, it's kind of interesting. The analysis here for me always is how much is qualitative, how much is quantitative. And I'm only looking at the core curriculum and we'll fast forward this to 1990 and to 2020 to see whether we're dynamic or whether we're static in our kind of uh, environment. But here, very much business in the dynamic economy, world resources, those are again, capitalism is good kind of courses. Some decision-making, lots of quant. Everyone likes quant. You must be able to do micro, macro, statistics, accounting, ops, etc. Although I don't know how many of us in our ripe old age spend our days doing macro, micro, statistics. I spend my day doing gift of the gab, really. And I don't see very many gift of the gab um, kind of courses in the 60s core curriculum. This one is probably hard to read, but as part of their review for the next go round, they were looking at what the curricula were in all of the different top schools in the States. And if you start with the little X's at the top, you can really see financial accounting, managerial accounting, micro, macro, OB, oh my God, an OB course probability and stats, ops, and a policy course. And that's really about it. Finan and not even finance and marketing in all of them. So you're looking at this kind of technocratic view about what business is about. And I, I still would like to argue with the fact that that's not what business is about, but that's clearly the perceived perception of what business uh, curricula ought to look like. So what Columbia made out of that is, I'm going too fast, a revised 1990 core curriculum with, and universities are good at this as well. Let's do courses of different lengths of weeks to confuse the students totally so that no one knows whether they're in the first part of this or the second part of that. So here again, accounting, managerial economics, global economics, decision models, stats, finance, ops, but they have put marketing in. And apparently there was a big revolution at Columbia because they didn't have finance in a business school which again, strikes me as a very weird kind of thing, but there you go. So if we compare, so here's what we get between 1960 and 1990, some changes, but not a ton. And then we move on to the next one, the 1990 versus 2020 curriculum comparison. And I don't know how long they worked on the 2021, and I'm not trying to have a go at Columbia at all, because I know nice people there, but they're the only institution that's been crazy enough to put out a 500 pager 
about their curriculum design over the years. It's actually really difficult to find old curricula, to see what's happened anywhere else, to see how courses have evolved over time. But this is just pretty much a straight up naming convention change. It's not ops management anymore. It's ops management and strategy. It's not managing human behavior in the organization, but it's leadership and organizational change. But otherwise, tremendous amount of continuity on these things. And you go, okay, well, who is this aimed at? Well, these stats come from the MBA, the EMBA, the MBA. Obviously, they may have some undergrad courses that are different. They may have some pre-experience master's courses that are different. And I'm really not in a position to do a course by course by course analysis uh, across the world. Just for what it's worth, I did one recently in the UK on undergraduate general business courses. And there was also nothing that you would call a red thread. Some schools are very people focused, others are very finance focused, but the course is always called the same thing. So it's very difficult, I think, for students to actually get, a, get their heads around what it is they're buying into, um, be that as it may. Okay, then we get into the question of, okay, so this is what we've learned. What is it that we actually work at? And what is it that we actually need to do? And one of my complaints that I'll come back to is we're ignoring with that quantitative orientation about effectively consulting, banking, heavy duty analysis, big chunks of people who are in areas like um, government, nonprofit, healthcare, you know, we all have specializations on technology and on, I don't know what finance accounting, but very few schools that I have come across have anything to do with healthcare or government. So I think that's really kind of an issue that has perplexed me for some time. And I have a point in that. The other perspective to look at it from is when you ask mid-career managers, and this is from too many years of running executive education, I can tell you no more than 20% of the requests are for anything that's really numerate. The numeracy requests come from people who want finance for non-financial manager sort of things, for people coming from other areas. But 75, 80% of it is about leadership, leading people, leading myself, understanding the strategic environment in which things are going on. So if you kind of bundle them, there's something around, leadership for me has two components. As a leader, I have to look into the marketplace to say, this is what's going on with my competitors. This is what's going on geopolitically. This is what's going on with COVID or Brexit or with China or with Russia or God knows what. And then I have to translate that to think about what does that mean for my organization, my portfolio, and my people. And at the other end, I have to do change management to get people on board to say, we're no longer doing typewriters, we're now doing computers, because typewriters are so yesterday. And you can already see how difficult that is. But there's something about sense-making and change management. And the sense-making is there. And the change management is really understanding the complexity being able to bring it across and being able to speak, write, facilitate, and do the soft skills, which are actually the hard skills in management. People get pretty stubborn. People hate change. You know, for a while I was trying to do some non-neuroscientist neuroscience and to undo the pathways that are formed in people's heads, to get them to do a new pathway is super difficult. It takes up a tremendous amount of mental energy, lots of sugar, all of the things that you don't think about really, but 
Um, if any of us have had trouble trying to get an accountant or a lawyer or someone in HR to see the light um, and to get them to accept some risk and come up with some strategic bright ideas, we all know how difficult it is. At, at, in Rotterdam, Rotterdam was the best. I, mean, I always said to someone, I, oh, I've had an idea. They said, oh no, Kai, we don't want any of your ideas. It's just gonna cause trouble and upset things. We want things to carry on as they were yesterday. Thank you very much. So if you again compare what is needed by managers, what jobs they're in, compared to what we're teaching them, I, I suggest to all of us that we really need to have a proper redesign of the content of what we're doing. If we were to start a business school from zero, would we teach the way we do? My, my sad answer is probably yes, because it's an industry-wide challenge. It's very hard to break out of a system, but one does have to look every now and then at some of the more innovative programs, never mind schools, in some cases schools overall, that really come at things from an entrepreneurial perspective, or slightly philosophical perspective, or people-oriented perspective. And you know, they really do add value. And I'm just kind of hoping for a combination, looking at things and finding a new balance rather than sticking to the tried and true, which is driven by our journals and our research and our research exercise frameworks and all the things we're supposed to do because we're good business school community people. Um, already in 1993, Steve Watson, who I actually knew quite well, who was at uh, Lancaster and Henley in the UK. This is, this is aging me by now. But this is when I was a young snot gobbler, everyone. They would pat me on the head because I was only about four foot tall. And they're like, Kai, Kai, you're going to learn something. But already in 1993, Stephen was on about, you know, the skills around conflicts, information processing, decision making. And my whole thing with doing exec ed forever was what you try and do is increase the level of wisdom by increasing the experience levels of participants in whatever classroom it may be whether exec ed or wherever else it may be. I think this is still super important also for board memberships when you're trying to diversify your board and you go, oh, let's find the first person representing some sort of particular group and throw them into the board. And if they haven't had at least 10 years of fighting it out in senior management and seeing some of the behavior and deviant behavior, they have a really hard time. We see it here with the national health system all the time oh, let's get someone to represent this particular ethnic group. And then they're looking at all these white old men who have no idea what these guys are talking about. So how can you build up the levels of experience and wisdom? It's by providing people with the kind of accelerated learning that we can do in a business school environment, that we can do with job rotations, that we can do with coaching. And that should be a core part of everything we do at all levels of business education. But we're all too busy, right? We teach. We don't have time for all of these other things. Okay, so where did that bring us now? What do we all say about ourselves? And uh, this is pretty scathing because it comes from the academy, Padoni in 09. Academics are not curious about what actually happens in organizations. Um, at some point in Rotterdam, I met some of the big PR company bosses who were happy to talk to my colleagues. We had a big research center for, um, you know, these kind of companies. I asked the head of the research center, do you want to meet the people running the comms companies? He goes, no, I'm happy writing about them without ever meeting them. It's, it's really true, it happens all the time. Um, Pfeffer has said management research should help practice. Just wrote an article with Howard on um, Turish's book about management gobbledygook, 
research. And we do, I, and for a while I collected up articles where I just had no idea what they were talking about, just to amuse myself. Uh, analytical models reduce reality to something which is a model, but the world is messy and it's not a model. You know, and it gets worse and worse and worse with the kind of complaints that we have. Where's my little thing now? Uh, here's some more that you'll all love. Minsberg, management can only be learned in practice, not in the classroom. Pfeffer and Fong, business schools to generate anything useful. Gashal, business schools encourage greed. And Martin Parker says, shut down the business school altogether, which seems rather a harsh conclusion, but he is a critical management researcher. And I do really appreciate that critical approach to, is what management does good or bad? Is what business schools do good or bad? I think everyone should have a voice in the debate as opposed to joining the academy and saying everything we do is perfect. So there's lots of issues that have arisen over the years in the whole space. So what are the implications here? The foundation reports have overemphasized liber libertarian capitalism at the expense of sustainability and the strategic development goals. The curriculum is skewed to quantitative subjects at the expense of other areas. There's little regard for the public sector, healthcare sector, and NGOs. And as one's career progresses, one uses hard skills much less and needs to develop leadership skills. If one looks at executive education, weirdly, the balance is exactly the opposite. So shut up where I am here very quickly. Now this was kind of a Kai's bright idea part two thing. I decided to actually look at the naming conventions of business schools because I purport that we should be schools of management and not business schools. So I looked at the 2021 Financial Times rankings of the European schools that covered all subjects. So not just the MBA. And of 67 business schools, of the whatever, 90, 67 are business schools, 21s are schools of management. And when you look where they are, there's a strong feature of schools of management at universities in uh, the European context. Um, Rotterdam School of Management, Otto Beisheim School of Management, you know, Grenoble, Cranfield, Tilburg, etc., Bath. So I thought, well, that's pretty good, but not bad at all. Could be better, not bad at all. When I looked at those that top the FT 100 ranking, 80 of them are business schools, only 20 are schools of management. I thought this was really even more interesting because there are only four schools, three of which are named in the States that haven't at some point changed from being schools of management or faculties of economics or something akin to that to changing their name altogether when they got the 100 million from Dan LeClaire to change it from the Yale School of Management to the Leclerc School of Business at Yale University. If you look, Canada is kind of in between. Um, and where's really interesting is in India, I don't think they'd be allowed at a state school to call their place a business school. I think that would just rub them the wrong way. I think similarly in China, it would really rub people the wrong way to call it a school of business. They're all called schools of management. Um, Australia, the only one was the University of New South Wales. So I don't know if I'm reading a ton into this or whether there is something about naming conventions. 
being a historian, political scientist, kind of words person, I would say there is a lot in naming conventions, but it really is a driver for where you come from and where you and where you're going to. That that it really does have deeper meaning. Um, but that can be up for a discussion we have in a moment. Where's my little mouse here? Okay, so naming conventions. US has four top 100 schools of management, rest are all business schools. Um, and uh, an article I read was Stanford was unnamed. And I would say Stanford is named after Leland Stanford. So that doesn't really count. In Europe, naming is very rare. And there are many more schools of management. China schools are not named. And this one I like the best. The, and I, so I also thought, let me look at communist countries and what happened there. How did the names change? from them. So I looked at the Warsaw School of Management, which it started as the August Zielinski Private Trade Courses for Men School, which is a very catchy, right up 21st century kind of name. Then when the communists came around, it was named the Central Planning and Statistics University. And it only got called the Trade University again in 1991. So there's definitely something about the approach to business and the view of business taken in different parts of the world and how they named their institutions and what they felt was really very important in those places. So kind of a thinking exercise for us. And I'll kind of round out there so we can go back to a, a conversation rather than me yattering on and on and on. If we want to develop a school of management from scratch, what would one have in it? What subjects, to what extent would we engage more with kind of history, geopolitics, ethics, philosophy in a real way, not just having a little class here or a little class there, but in a real way to have a multidisciplinary business school. We do multidisciplinary in many other areas, but we don't really do it in the business school setting. We do a little bit of research with the mates in engineering or the friends in healthcare, but we really don't think they ought to become part of the business school because they're the wrong sorts. What type of faculty members would we have? I totally agree. I get super frustrated listening to colleagues who are telling me about how to do change management or how to do leadership. And you go, have you ever changed anything or led anything? They're like, no, and I'm, I'm an academic. I look at these things like the grumpy old men up on the balcony in the Muppet show, that point down to the Muppets and have opinions on what they're doing down there, but certainly wouldn't want to go down there with them. You know, what curriculum structures should we have? And I think this is a good time to reflect. I'm not sure. In some ways, business schools have been complaining about themselves for a long time about lack of change. But I think we're certainly seeing change due to the private providers, due to the MOOCs coming in. I'm personally really fascinated by the, um, the uh, accreditation of prior learning from the MOOCs. So the MIT one, there's an MIT one on supply chain, another one on kind of statistical methods, and another one on ops and manufacturing. Each of them cost two grand US. And there are now not only um, MIT, but 21 other universities around the world will accept that certificate from MIT to waive the first third of a master's degree. Yeah, if you carry on at MIT, the whole degree will cost you two plus 18 equals 20. If you were to sign up just for the whole thing face-to-face -face at MIT, 55. If you sign up for like two of them at MIT, you could get two plus two. 
at Coventry, we would top you up. That's our regulations. So we could top you up for the last third and you could have a master's degree with MIT inside. Um, because one of my other things on this perspective is it's mad, madly insane that all 110, no, what is it? 11,000 business schools in the world are all trying to put their entire curricula online themselves for themselves. The world does not need 11,000 introductory marketing courses. The world does not need nor have 11,000 introductory marketing books. We're all happy to give our money to Kotler at Kellogg and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, so why are we doing this in a kind of online sense? Um, going back to the faculty and looking at also the MOOCs and things, how are we finding the interface between practitioners and researchers to make that work? And, you know, in some ways, an institution like the one I'm at now started out as something called a polytechnic, which was basically until 1992, largely a teaching institute. Did some applied research, really cared about the students on the program, and the business model was teaching plus or minus 500 hours a year and not really being um, you know, looked at for research. But between the accreditations, the rankings, our own perceptions of what the right thing to do is, we've all gone to 180 hour, 120 hour teaching and the, the rest is publish or perish. So perhaps I can round out there and hopefully I haven't bored everyone out of their minds, but hopefully have been able to provoke some thinking about where we're going. To recap, I think we should be schools of management to acknowledge the fact that management is needed in many, many areas. And I think we should also think about management, what management actually does, and reflect that more in the business school setting. Thank you. Thank you, Kai, for, as I started by saying provocative remarks. And we're going to have some fun now with some, some of the questions that have been posed and, um, and comments. And, and by the way, I, I wanted to tell the audience before we started, uh, Kai asked if uh, the um, digging in the background <laughs> was, uh, was um, interfering. And we said no, and hopefully it hasn't. Uh, I could hear it gently in the background. So hopefully all of you were able to, to gather Kai's remarks, um, despite the construction in the back. What did you call it? Pound, what, what kind of work is happening back there, Kai? They're, they're jackhammering up the street to put some internet lines down. All they're right. <laughs> tearing up all of London. So, oh my goodness. You know, on one side of the flat, we have the, the kind of leaf blowers and the, the laundry, the, the lawn mowers. And then you come to this side and you get the jackhammers. London's always peaceful. Excellent place to just get some. <laughs> well, we can hear you just fine. And I, I, at least I can. I hope everybody else is not at a problem as well. But, you know, I want to, um, I guess, point out that at least my interpretation of some of the chat is that this the school of business, school of management thing uh, hits, a, hits a nerve, strikes people particularly um, in, in particularly interesting ways. I wanna, I wanna ask about that a little bit uh, since it, it does seem to um, matter. One of our colleagues from India points out that it, we do have schools of business in uh, India and others have pointed out that the way we often talk about our industry management education and the way we think forward is often 
using the term management rather than business. And as you've pointed out and others, um, talking about schools of business sometimes um, limits our potential as it relates to uh, the public sector, uh, civil society, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, the, what I remember many of these conversations at AACSB, you know, is AACSB about accrediting schools of business or accrediting schools of management? What do we call it? Do we call it uh, business education or management education? And on the other hand, sometimes we associate management in our siloed world of business as being um, exclusive of finance, exclusive of marketing, and that it sounds too narrow if we talk about um, just management. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the, the uh, other perspective and how do you feel about that? Do you think calling it schools of management in any way could be more limiting? I don't think so. I think in management, you have to be able to integrate all of the different functions. I keep thinking about it from a different perspective, Dan. How much mm -hmm. of what is taught in an MBA program or similar would be useful for a senior manager in government or in healthcare. And you go, some of it probably less so, depending on the system. They probably aren't selling in the sense of marketing. Although even then there's something about communicating government services or communicating what you're doing in the National Health Service. So there is some comms, but it's not necessarily sales and marketing. There's definitely finance and accounting that are important. There's probably some need, but lots of need for supply chain and ops. But I think very rarely are there cases used that bring these perspectives in because that would bring the groups closer together. It would be much easier to say, now guys, I know that you think this is a bunch of monkey business, but finance in the public sector is very difficult to get right because it's a limited amount of money. It is the Soviet central funding allocation model. You can't just make more money. Whereas if you're selling popsicles, you sell some more popsicles and you get some more resources. So there's something about the constraints of finance versus the openness of finance. And both are really worth thinking about. So I think that the management would offer opportunities. And to your introductory thing, I know in India, I, I've traveled around India quite a lot, where I see the naming conventions are different. There's a lot of the newer business schools that are named after the Tatas and the motorcycle companies, et cetera. We're part of the social responsibility drive driven by the Ministry of Education to tell the corporates to give back. But that's not Dan Leclerc, look at me, I am Elon Musk, I am a billionaire, I am omniscient. Um, it is actually Tata Enterprises going, yeah, that makes sense. We should also develop a management academy that we offer people undergrad and postgrad degrees in, but hopefully it's not named after I am the hero. And I think that there is a little bit of a problem with that. I am the hero. I made my money doing derivatives on Wall Street or on you know, whatever it may be. And now look at my generosity. I'm giving it back. But I haven't paid any taxes in 30 years, but that's okay. Now I'm getting a tax break um, because I've given to a university. It's a bit, bit on the suspicious side. Understand, understand. Um, I want to go to a question that was posed early um, because I don't want to um, lose sight of the time and um, not go back. But the question was very specific. Do we think or do you think that the knowledge exchange framework, the KEF, um, will 
um, change the direction of, let's call it management education. No, let's call it uh, what business schools do. Do you, are you optimistic about that? Do you think that this is a trigger? No, um, the way I read this is it's a government policy in the UK driven to influence small and mediums as well as middle level management, which isn't that great. Um, so you end up chalking little lists of one, two, three, four, five, six um, SMEs in my local neighborhood that I've worked with. The, the economics doesn't work very well because they don't have any money. So you can do some workshops and seminars, but what I hear um, via highways and byways is it's gonna get killed, the CAF. It's not gonna be around because one thing you can count on in the UK is a big announcement about a new policy, which then two years later, with its tail between its legs, goes slithering off into the darkness, never to be seen again until five years later, whoop, it pops up again. Well, pretty straightforward response to that question, which is always appreciated from Kai. Hey, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the chat, uh, John North, who I think you know from the Globally Responsible Leadership Initiative, back in 2012, published a report called uh, 50 Plus 20, um, and it's really about the future of management education, and um, there's some specifics that he's noted there. But I want to ask uh, this sort of idea of management education for the world. The subtext for, for the 50 plus 20 report was um, instead of business schools being about really being simply good business schools to being good for the world. Um, and there's a lot of initiatives like this. Uh, in the UK, the Chartered ABS you're familiar with just published a report about business schools uh, and the public good. I was on that task force. Yeah. Um, the AACSB has a new standard, Standard 9, about the societal impact. So there's, a, there's a lot happening. Uh, there's new positive impact rating. What, are, what do you think about the opportunity for those to change or shift or reinforce the direction of business schools insofar as you think there's some progress already? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fully supportive and have been through my entire career to, to do good stuff for as many people as possible at a price point, which is realistic. You know, I can just get another dig in at business schools. Some of the prices, some of the MBA programs around the world, I find shocking, absolutely shocking. You're charging 180,000 US for an EMBA at Wharton? How do you justify that? I mean, if someone's going to give me the money, I'll take it, right? But it seems like it's a little bit exclusive and excluding rest of the world. So with, with some of our colleagues at Coventry, we talk about can we come up with the $1,000, £1,000, whatever price point um, degree. And for me, the accreditation of prior learning through some of the MOOCs that have some of those you know, MOOC rules applying to them now offers a really good opportunity. I think we could do much more, almost the Open University of Old Revisited, which is using online learning with local tutors so that someone could get a degree from, and I, I see this is happening now at the University of Phoenix, but they have some initiative with Doug Becker from Ex Laureate, where he wants to use the online stuff to then find partner schools around the world who will have local faculty members saying, you know, here's the course, it's within itself. If you, want, if you pay X, you get the local degree using that contact, context or that content. If you pay two or three X, then you get not only ours, but you also get an Arizona State one. 
And so that, so I think that that's an interesting way that we're going to be able to see. I, you know, we can talk about the constraints all day long. Not everyone's internet is all that great, but then even in the Western world, some of our internet has been pretty shit. Over the that's all going to change with that construction happening outside. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you raise it. You know, I, I appreciate your um, enthusiasm for many of these initiatives, and you raise a, you know, I, I think a, a good point. You know, and early in your presentation, you mentioned uh, Rakesh Karana. And um, I remember a conversation I had with Rakesh when he um, published his book, and he was about to speak at an AACSB event. And I was heading uh, uh, up work at, at the time with AACSB. And I, I, I talked to him the night before, and I, I asked, what are you going to talk about? And he said, well, uh, mostly things in the book uh, that you're familiar with. And so we had this conversation. But um, as I was leaving the conversation, he said, oh, by the way, Dan, he said, um, I'm also going to talk about how business schools have become only about the business. And and I said, I turned around and I, I asked, so, so you mean uh, in addition to all the other stuff, it's also about the business? He said, no. He said, you know, take a look at your program, Dan, the one we're about to experience um, that he was going to speak at. And there was a lot of stuff about strategic planning for business schools, fundraising for business schools, um, the, the business model for business schools. But there was absolutely not one thing about the curriculum and what we teach. And, and I took my lesson. Uh, we hired a, a great fellow named Patrick Cullen, who had written a book. Uh, with two others about rethinking the MBA, and we started working on the curriculum side. But it's it's really important, you know, the business side versus the the academic side, and really reinforcing what we need to do. I'm going to shift gears again um, um, uh, to to go back to a question. Your your responsibilities include not only business but also law. What can we learn from uh, centuries, I suppose, of law or school education um, around the world? Um, well, it seems to me the fundamental difference between business and law is law is a regulated profession with a professional body with kind of entrance requirements which you may consider valid or not, but articling and doing this and passing your exams. And once you've done all that, you get a stamp on your forehead that says you are capable within the framework of the law of being like a, a good egg and uh, actually knowing what you're talking about. Whereas business is a, one of those funny ones because it's somewhere between art and a profession, isn't it? And every time there's been an initiative to professionalize management in some form, you get some earnest body that says they are the font of all knowledge on what management is about. And they're gonna charge you $150 a student to stamp them off at the end of the MBA program. And could you please send them a couple hundred grand every year for it? And no one's ever bought into that. But I also think it's just not possible. I, I don't understand realistically. I can understand being a finance professional, being an accountant professional, being a legal professional. HR is almost like a legal professional within the HR scheme, but with like marketing and management in general, leadership. Show me what a leader, what a leader is. That's one of those ones that fills up 3,000 books a year on Amazon and there isn't anything that's particularly wise, is there, on it? Yeah, I, I understand. In fact, I think your your points have stimulated some further discussion on the 
on the chat, um, you know, about this idea of licensure and restriction. I'm with you. You know, the the fact is, management is pervasive. Uh, everybody does management, right? And the you know the question is, do we need degrees in order to do this? And um, well, if if I can give you a crazy example. The German system, I am German, so I'm allowed to make fun of them, have all of their apprenticeships for everything. And you even have to do an apprenticeship on like selling fruit and vegetables. And so I was like winding someone up. I go, what do I have to learn to sell oranges? You must be able to differentiate between all of the different oranges. How long does it take me to learn to be an orange person? They said two years. I'm like, you're kidding me. So there's also something that's so restrictive where you go about the mom and pop corner shop here. They're, they're running a business, they're managing, and they're basically doing a little retail kind of 7-Eleven place. You can't force them now to have some sort of qualification to run it on perhaps a health and safety certificate and making sure they pay their taxes. Otherwise it's just- agree. But on the other hand, um, it's something because we all do, and because it's really hard, as you pointed out, right? Managing, uh, I've always believed, is one of the hardest things for anyone to do, partly because we're working through and with other people, right? So that you talked about communication before. And, um, and it's that piece, it's that piece that we can all get better at it. If there's no um, sort of point where you've mastered the art or practice of management that I think gives uh, business schools a lot of, um, I guess, hope moving forward, especially in a world where we recognize over the course of the career, we must switch often between uh, uh, jobs. We might move from a corporate environment to an entrepreneurial environment. So this constant development in the management business field is, is pretty important. Now, I want to I um, go back to something you, you said a, a little while ago, and I want to um, play up that a little bit. You talked a little bit about MOOCs. You talked a little bit about um, exclusivity versus inclusivity. And I think this is very much related to uh, our, our point. I, I believe that the, the main challenge we have at GBSN is how do we do things that work, that are effective and are accessible, right? Now we can think of things that, you know, um, top business school MBA program that we could argue works uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it be just to connect to the right communities or uh, just for the selection process itself. And we could think of things, but they're not very accessible, right? We could think of things that are accessible, MOOCs, but there's a belief that they don't work as well um, yet, especially in context in certain parts of the world as they could. But this idea of connecting globally, connecting um, this uh, digital content to local support, to local professors and local schools really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Tell us, do you have some models that you could point to where you see this starting to work? Well, we're trying to do it within our own place by using the online MBA curriculum 
as support for the EMBA program for our Polish location. And we said, we can't do flying faculty. We don't have enough local faculty, but we can find local facilitators. Now, the most interesting example I saw was in The Economist a number of years ago, where Brazil apparently has a ton of online learners, but they all go to the same location to kind of learn together, um, whether on their own screens or watching the screen together. And part of it is that social aspect that we all know under um, COVID that we missed. And so then afterwards they can go out, go down the pub, have a beer or talk to each other about things. So I think that there's something that GBSN could probably facilitate to say to some of the partner schools, are you willing to do an experiment and offer up a cert in a post-grad certain management to one or two of the partner schools in some other part of the world and don't really want any money or on it or just cost and use some of the local faculty members to facilitate the conversation. Now the two potential reactions, one is that's the best idea you've ever had. The other is why should we listen to the snots from MIT tell us how to do supply chain? Don't you think we know how to do it here? And that kind of remains to be seen. But I do think there needs to be some sort of anchor. I think just broadcasting stuff from MOOCs individuals um, sitting in their kind of attics by themselves isn't going to create any sort of community feel. Right, understood. And I feel like at this point, I need to offer a, a, a bit of a qualifier that uh, Kai Peters does not represent the views and, <laughs> and insights of GVSN, especially to our MIT member and our RSM member and our Columbia <laughs> Business School member. <laughs> But uh, interesting uh, comments. We have so many questions, though. I'm trying to get my arms around some of these these questions and and um, and um, many comments as well. But I think we have time for uh, one more. And um, you know, there's a there's a question. By the way, maybe you could um, jump on this quickly because of your global experience about Chinese business schools and that they require professors to re refresh. I didn't know about this. 10% of their course content they teach every year. Any comment about that, Kai? And then we'll move on to the, the bigger question, I think, about specialization. Well, I think we really are st all standing before a need to really refresh, to bring in what we've learned from COVID and homeworking and supply chain disruption and global disruption. I think we can all be a little bit lazy. Uh, let's use the same cases again and again and again, or let's use the same material again and again. And there's probably something which is just the core curriculum in a sensible way. These are the kind of, you know, 25% of the stuff that you really ought to know. Otherwise, how can you claim to have been to business school? But I think more bringing more in. And I certainly see teaching. If I can ask the Chinese kids that are very shy sometimes to tell me about some cool startup in an online space that's happening in China, they'll start laughing hysterically because they have such great toys in China. And then they're like, never mind just ant finance or these things, these WeChat, these pedestrian kind of things. They're like, what about this one, Kai? And what about that one? And what about the other one? And it's really eye-opening for me um, to hear about what goes on in different parts of the world. And there's the kind of imperialism still on the cases must come from North America. They must come from Northern Europe. And it'd be much more fun to also have a more of an inclusive approach just because it's really interesting what happens. I wanted to run a course on Okay, if someone thinks up eBay, how does eBay get translated into the 200 other world markets? Because in hardly any of them is it going to be eBay. 
it's going to be some sort of version thereof. And this is how it gets sorted out in India. And this is how it gets sorted out in China. Or this is the Amazon competitor. And the Chinese government has blocked Amazon. So therefore, we're not going to have any of that. And then we're going to get this other thing. So I, I think that's really fun. Well, this, that's an interesting perspective on that, uh, uh, Kai. I, I want to uh, look at the time here. We have uh, uh, two minutes. There is a question about specialism. I think uh, we're talking about specialization of universities. Is it a good thing or bad thing as universities become more specialized uh, or less specialized? What do you think um, ought to happen in that space? Personally, I think that undergraduate should be relatively standard and that master's degrees should be more specialized. If we're gonna do more specialization at undergrad and at least do some teaching jointly in year one and year two, and then go separate pathways. Um, at, at, at our place in Coventry, we simply have too many named degrees to keep track of them and to really be clear on the differentiation between them. And it's not just a Coventry problem. It's a problem of any scaled university. You're gonna have you know, 125 undergraduate degrees in the business school. I don't know how you keep them, keep them apart. It just seems really hard work. And there was that one vice chancellor president who went to Australia Sydney, I think it's Spence, I might be wrong. We wanted to have basically four degrees in each of the four faculties and to drive that down from 640 to 16. He of course busted his teeth on that, as you can well imagine, but there's something to be said for it. And if I put myself in the shoes of all the kids that are now asking me, hey, Mr. Peters, my, my dad says, you know something about universities. And they're like 17 and they're like, how does it work? What do I sign up for? How do I differentiate between accounting and finance and finance and accounting and finance and managerial accounting? I'm like, young man, young woman, it's hard. <laughs> it is, it is definitely hard to navigate uh, the complex environment of higher education. You know, Kai, this has been great. Um, you know, I, I want to say, especially for the GBSN context, because a lot of the things you talk about, if you look ahead, for example, to our GBSN Beyond event, um, we are positioning um, that event to reflect GBSN's history at the nexus between business schools. Well, business schools are at the nexus between business, government, and civil society. And there's, a, there's room for us to do a better job of connecting and empowering uh, uh, learners everywhere um, yeah. in that context. And, and just your, your points about localization ring true for GBSN. We believe strongly in local relevance and to get that you need this peer-to-peer -peer social learning, but you also need uh, project-based learning locally. Um, so thank you for um, really helping us to see our way at GBSN as much as helping business schools see their way moving forward in general. We appreciate this so much. Um, it's, we've had a lot of great comments. We'll, we'll save them for you, Kai, so that you can reply later. Some of the uh, more interesting ones we didn't even get to. So thank you so much, Kai. Again, always insightful, always provocative and always fun. We appreciate it. And apologies to Columbia. Uh, who else did I slag? All of them. RSM, MIT, all members of GBSN, which <laughs> are driving forward in, in very positive ways. We appreciate that. My thanks to Dan for facilitating that conversation and a special thanks to Kai Peters for his presentation, Insights and Time.
to attend our cross-border webinars and catch up with more of the work we do here at the Global Business School Network, please visit gbsn.org. If you've enjoyed your listening experience, please remember to rate, click and subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, take care.